Well, as most of you know, this coming uh, Wednesday night, we have a church uh, discipline case that is going to trial. And because uh, church discipline is something that many people have never witnessed, and many churches just refuse to practice it altogether, um, our circumstances warrant some instruction on this topic. So um, if you are a guest here or are not in the loop, uh, you've come on uh, an interesting Sunday. (laughs) Um, This is a a little bit of a family uh, meeting and a uh, break from our sermon series in Mark to address uh, this topic of discipline, a hard topic uh, to grapple with. So uh, because I know there are a lot of uh, questions out there about uh, the trial, about what is excommunication, about this whole process, and uh, I've had some conversations uh, uh, with those of you who have reached out to me over the last week, um, I want to answer in this sermon three, I think, very practical questions that uh, I think should be on your mind. And uh, if I don't address your specific question, I do invite you to come and just ask me directly or email me, uh, find me after service, that kind of thing. I'm happy to field uh, any questions uh, you may have. Um, I'll also add, uh, this is going to be a more one of those more topical sermons, so I'm not going to give a full uh, verse-by-verse exposition of Hebrews 12, but I will uh, reference it throughout. So there are three questions I want to answer from the scriptures this morning, and they are these. Number one, what is church discipline? Number two, Why does God command the church to exercise discipline? And then third, what is the purpose of a public trial like the one that we're going to be conducting on Wednesday? So that's where we're going. So number one, what is church discipline? At the most basic level, church discipline is God's way of treating us as his beloved children. It says in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So when you became a Christian and were baptized into Jesus Christ, you became an adopted child of God. And from that day forward, God promises to be your God, and to treat you as his beloved son or daughter. That is the promise of the covenant of grace. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. So to become a Christian is to have God now as your heavenly father who loves you and cares for you and only and always seeks what is good for you. Uh, David, reflecting on this great truth, says in Psalm 27, When my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. He says in Psalm 68, he calls God the father of the fatherless, a defender of widows. How did Jesus teach us to pray? And we just prayed it. He he said, address God as our father in heaven. So if you are a Christian, regardless of the status of your relationship with your earthly father and mother, however good or bad that relationship may be, uh, if if you're a Christian, God is now your father. He has adopted you, and you belong to him, body, soul, and spirit. As it says in our text, in verse 9, Paul says, God is the, quote, father of spirits. So our earthly father and mother, they may have given us our flesh, our, what we call our genes, our DNA, our looks, 
our hair color and eye color, our first and last name. They gave those things to us. But when God becomes our father, he gives us a new name, a new spirit, a new heart, a new nature, a new family, a new destiny, and a new future that is glorious and everlasting. This is the new creation Jesus brings about in those who are united to him by faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So if you're a Christian, that is true of you. To become a Christian is to receive a new father. Now, uh, we see in our text that one of the things a good father does is discipline his children. And it is this discipline from our earthly fathers that tells us who our father is. Because, you know, ordinarily, uh, fathers do not spank the neighbor's kids. At least, ordinarily, they don't. <laughs> I've never attempted such, right? So, so a father disciplines his own children, That's a sign of who's your daddy. And therefore, Paul says that when God disciplines us, as grievous and as painful as it feels in the moment, it it is actually a sign of sonship and an act of love. The fact that God disciplines us, the fact that God loves you enough to spank you, is a sign that you belong to him. You are his child. You are not a child of the devil. It says in Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly, quickly. Likewise, it says in Psalm 119, verse 67, so this is the psalmist reflecting on God's discipline. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray but now I keep your word. This is what discipline does. It forms the soul. Again, a few verses later, the psalmist says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So if God spares the rod, well, then he hates you. If God never disciplines you, then you are not his child. We are so sick with sin, sick with worldliness, that we need God to cut us open. He needs to take out our heart of stone and give us a new heart and new desires altogether. And, you know, for those of you who have undergone surgery, you know that it's not a lot of fun. These days, we have all kinds of, you know, drugs that can numb some of the pain, but, uh, you know, when God does surgery on you, often, you know, you're not asleep, (laughs) You're awake and you feel everything. When God wrestled with Jacob, remember this, he's res- uh, Jacob has had a hard life and he's wrestling with the angel and it's actually God wrestling with him. And he says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And God blesses him. He likes that. He's wrestling because he wants you to not let go until you get the blessing. And, and it says the angel, uh, you know, because angels can do this, they, he just touched his hip and put it out. And from that day forward, Jacob has a new name, Israel. And that's going to become the name of the people of God. And from that day forward, Jacob, 
has to walk with a limp. It says the next day he, he gets up, he crosses the river, he's, going to, he's afraid of meeting his brother Esau, and he has to limp across and goes and trust, trust the Lord, and Esau doesn't come and kill him. What does Esau do? Right? He, they fall on one another's uh, shoulders, crying, and are, are reconciled. One of the most moving scenes in the whole Bible. Right? We think that God is our healer, and indeed he is, but sometimes the way he heals our soul is by breaking our hip. So God plays rough with us. God plays rough with you. He wounds us, though, because he loves us. And as the Father Almighty, who knows all things, beginning and end, uh, he knows best and better than you what is good for you. Therefore, any pain that he permits into your life, you can patiently endure and receive as his way of lifting your eyes to heaven and the life that is to come. You think of how many uh, young men want to go be professional athletes. You know, I thought I was going to be in the NBA when I was 10 years old. Um, <laughs> those hopes were misplaced. And, you know, how many uh, young athletes you feel invincible when you're young and then, you know, you, uh, you get injured? And suddenly your hope to be a uh, college athlete or get that scholarship or, you know, go to the pros gets dashed and you're, you have this crisis of what was I living for, right? That's just an example of some of the ways that God snaps us and reminds us, you know, what are you living for? Are you just living for the weekend? Just living for getting that good job and having that idyllic uh, home life? Or uh, are you just living to get married one day and raise children, right? These, you know, it's okay to go be a professional athlete and, and perform and do all those things. It's good to, to be married and all of these things. But God wants to know, are you um, settling with that? Are you settling with the good things that you desire on this earth or are you looking for the life that is to come, right? Just before our passage, Hebrews 12, is Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. And it says, Abraham regarded himself as a sojourner and pilgrim on this earth because he desired a heavenly city, right? We, all of us want to feel rooted. We want to have a place to settle down and that's good and natural and right. But for the Christian, you really need to settle down and put your roots in heaven, right? That is what God is trying to do when he disciplines us, whether through uh, providence, hard times, sickness in the body, or even as we are conducting church discipline. Right? All, all of these things are God's fatherly way of preparing you to be more glorious, to share in the eternal life that is to come. Colossians 3 says, Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. And when our affections are stuck down here, God often disciplines us to elevate our minds to him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, that God permitted him, he's an apostle, God permitted him to be, quote, 
burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. So Paul was so burdened, he was despairing of life. But then he tells us why his heavenly father did this. He says, it was so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So the discipline of the Lord in all its uh, many forms is given to all of God's children so that you will not trust in yourself, but in God who raises the dead. So if God is your father at some point and throughout your life, he is going to permit pain. He's going to use the rod to purge out the sin in your life. And as it says in Hebrews 12.10, this is all for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. So that is God's discipline in the broadest of terms. And then church discipline is just one of the many means or instruments that God uses to make us holy. If we were to survey the entire Bible on this topic of a church discipline, we would find that there are different kinds and different degrees of discipline within the church. So uh, let me give you some of these categories. The biggest distinction is between what we call uh, informal discipline and formal discipline. So informal discipline is what you are all getting right now. <laughs> it's when we hear the word preached, hear the word read, and for those of us with ears to hear, God convicts us. The word cuts us and we're moved to change. We're moved to repent and do what pleases our Father. So you hear the word or you're doing your you know, daily devotions in the morning. That's all God's way of informally disciplining you, shaping you into a disciple. And just as parents should not spank their children for every little fault, so also, God does not spank you for every little fault, right? <laughs> Your bum would always be red. Right? God is patient. God knows what you can handle, and he often gives us a long time to repent and work on things that he wants us to change, right? There are many things that all of us need to change, and if God told us all at once, you know, you probably wouldn't ever get up off your face. So God is patient. He's gentle. He knows what is the next thing you need to work on? And there's a lot of things that all of us need to work on, right? So we, we ought not kid ourselves as if, you know, the discipline is over. It never stops until death. However, if we presume on God's patience and kindness, if we don't actually ever repent, well, that is when God may bring pain into our life to wake us up. So informal discipline is what all of us are constantly subjecting ourselves to, or at least should be, when we hear the word, when we pray, when we kneel and confess our sins each day, all of that. Uh, Romans 8.13 describes this kind of informal self-discipline when it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So either you inflict the pain on your flesh, or God will, all right? So you, could, you can either humble yourself or God will humiliate you. Which one do you want to do, right? This is why we kneel and confess our sins every Lord's Day, and I encourage you to do that you know, morning and evening. Um, we need to be constantly repenting so that uh, you know, God doesn't have to humiliate us. Now, what happens when you don't do this? When you refuse to discipline yourself. 
What happens when you resist the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Well, the sins that we think are you know, private, personal, and hidden uh, just don't stay hidden for long. And eventually, those sins spread like leaven and can start to affect and infect other people. Jesus says, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. And if you have a sinful heart, uh, it just won't be long until you are sinning against others. When we sin against someone else, Jesus gives us a process for dealing with it that starts with informal correction and then escalates to what we call formal discipline. So the classic text is Matthew 18, and I'll just walk you briefly through these, these different steps. So in Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So if someone sins, the first thing you should think is, I need to contain it, right? I don't need to, uh, you know, call them out in front of everybody if I don't have to. Sometimes that's called for, but you want to try to take them aside in private, you know, not, not put them on the spot, not try to shame them. Just take them aside privately and say, hey, I noticed how you spoke to your wife that way. That's not how we should speak. You're calling the person to repent, and this is what all of us should be doing for one another all the time. That doesn't mean we always see it clearly. Maybe it wasn't actually a sin. Maybe we got a plank to take out of our eye. But Jesus says, your brother sins against you. you know, go and tell him his fault and try to settle it privately. That is informal church discipline. You confronting and being confronted by your fellow brother or sister. Now, if that person refuses to repent, Jesus says in the next verse, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. And then he quotes the law, which we heard earlier in Deuteronomy. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So, We've escalated now. You're t- they, they didn't hear me the first time. They're still doing the thing. Now we need to take uh, another person along. This, this could be an elder, but it could also just be you know, someone else in the church. So still at this point, this is usually an informal church discipline still. We might not ever hear about it as elders, but you know, the disputes are settled, right? This is, you know, for those of you with children, there's some times where you just need to tell your kids, hey, work it out. <laughs> We've taught you how to reconcile Go work it out. If you can't, yeah, mom and dad are the court of appeal. But, you know, grow up. You guys can do this. You can settle this dispute. So it's only after uh, them not listening to the two or three witnesses that you take with you that Jesus says you escalate and tell it to the church. So this is where we get into the realm of what we call formal church discipline because now the elders are involved. So Jesus says, uh, if the person still refuses to repent, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So the church here uh, can refer both to the elders as representatives of the congregation or the whole membership. And if after listening, uh, if after refusing to listen to the elders and the whole church, right, they're still, if they're still unrepentant, then comes this last and final stage of discipline, which Jesus says, you know, treat them as a heathen or a tax collector. This is just what we call excommunication. They're saying by their words or their actions or both, I'm not a Christian. I'm not going to ask forgiveness. I'm not going to repent. And so excommunication is actually kind of ratifying a decision that they Made. It's acknowledging that they have broken fellowship with the church for whatever reason. They won't repent. Therefore, they are um, judged as excommunicated. If someone is excommunicated, uh, in, in many cases, it doesn't mean they can't like, come in the doors of the church. 
And often you would want them to come into the doors of the church so that they can hear and repent and forgive. So this isn't in every case like a public shunning where we no longer will look at you or speak to you anymore. It just means now they've moved from the category of brother and sister in Christ to a neighbor who needs Christ. So that's, that's all that has changed. So excommunication, again, is simply the announcement that someone is no longer a Christian. They refuse to repent. They, they refuse to submit to the government of the church. And therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So you'll notice there are degrees of discipline ranging from informal self-discipline to admonishment between brothers to formal discipline from the elders, which, if the person still is unrepentant, can finally lead to excommunication. But even then, notice the purpose of excommunication Paul gives. So you deliver someone to the realm of Satan, so they're no longer under the protection of the church. They're separated from Christ and the sacraments. That's what it means to be delivered unto Satan. And the hope is that person becomes so miserable living outside of the church under the, you know, the realm of Satan with the world that they want to come back. This is why Paul says, so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So uh, there's a time where you need to kick the person out of your, you know, if you have a child who just refuses to listen, say they're 18, and you say, look, if you're not going to obey your father and the house rules, as much as it pains us, we have to cut you off. You got to go. This is called, uh, in the Bible, there are many laws about this, uh, where you are disinheriting a child and you're bringing pain on them because you want them to not like that pain and then want to be reconciled. This is kind of you know, the prodigal son kind of thing. So the, go- the goal of all discipline, whether you know, informal stuff all the way up to excommunication, is that the wayward child uh, be restored to the family of God. Restoration is always the goal when God disciplines us. So to summarize, church discipline, whether formal or informal, private or public, when done in obedience to the scriptures, that's an important caveat, right? Not every church practices discipline in obedience to the scriptures. That's what we're seeking to do. When it's done in obedience to the scriptures, that is God's way of treating you as his beloved son or daughter. And that's why he can say in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, my son, don't despise this. Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receiveth. Right? A scourge is not a little love pat. It's painful. So do not despise your father in heaven when he scourges you. Remember, it's a sign of love and sonship. Right? Receive the rebuke as oil upon your head. Uh, Moving on into our uh, second question. Now, why does God command the church specifically to exercise discipline? Uh, We've already kind of begun to answer this question. It's because God loves us. But there are uh, many additional reasons that Scripture gives for why uh, the church must exercise both formal and informal, private and public discipline. I think most of us can understand the whole informal and private stuff. But why do things need to be made public? Why do you do Uh, formal or public discipline. 
The Westminster uh, Confession, which is our church's doctrinal standard, uh, nicely summarizes what the whole Bible has to say on it. So it kind of reduces it down to, let me see here, I think I have five. Yes, so Westminster Confession uh, reduces it down to five reasons why God commands the church to exercise discipline. So I'm going to just read this paragraph from the confession, then I'll walk through it in more normal English and give you uh, the passages where that comes from. So this is uh, Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 30, section 3. It says, church censures, it's another word for discipline, church censures are necessary for, one, the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, two, for deterring of others from the like offenses, Three, for purging out of that leaven which might infect the whole lump. Four, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. And then five, for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. All right, so let me restate those five reasons for us in my own words, and then point to you where they're found in Scripture. So why does God command the church to exercise discipline? Number one, to call back the wayward sheep. So we already saw this in Matthew 18, uh, 1 Corinthians 5. The purpose of confronting your brother is not because you just like to point out people's faults. It's because you want to restore them. You want to be restored to them. You want them restored to Christ. So that's the first reason. Second, it's to deter others from committing similar sins. So why do you, we call this like making an example of someone. This is a biblical idea with certain crimes that are especially uh, heinous. Uh, There's a reason why God commanded that certain crimes be punished in public. Because you're supposed to see if the person is being stoned that I really should not do this. And it actually requires, in certain cases, the whole congregation to be a partaker of the execution by throwing a stone, okay? There is a very, uh, there is a pedagogical, a teaching lesson for that that you probably will not ever forget if you had to partake of that, right? Now that seems so ancient and barbaric to us who, you know, do these things in places where no one ever sees. And this is why our nation is in the state that it's in. There is blood guilt that has not been dealt with. There, has been, there have been many people who have committed murder and ought to be executed but have not or are executed in private and no one ever uh, learns or knows. Right? So God wants this kind of justice to be executed publicly to deter others from committing similar sins. Let me give you a few uh, verses for this. Paul says in Ephesians 5, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Likewise, in 1 Timothy 5.20, and this is referring especially to elders, but can apply to others, uh, them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. So that's pretty straightforward. You do it in front of everybody so that everyone will be afraid. Likewise, Proverbs 19.25 says, Smite a scorner and the simple will beware. (coughs) Excuse me. So God commands the church to publicly rebuke, admonish, and bring certain unrepentant sins into the light so that the offender will be ashamed and repent. 
but also so that we will stand in fear that if we do not repent, the same discipline may come to us. So, you know, all of us have the little seeds of murder and adultery and all of the big heinous crimes. All of us have the the little baby versions of that in our heart. And when you see someone being executed or excommunicated or disciplined because they have the full flower of the thing, it makes you want to uproot whatever seed might be uh, gaining ground in your life. This is the function of public discipline as a warning for the rest of us. This is a little bit like if you, if, uh, you are a younger child, a wise younger child, and you saw your older sibling uh, you know, talking a certain way to mom and then really getting a whooping, you could either learn and observe, all right, I'm not going to do that. Or you could also learn by experience if you want to. This is basically the book of Proverbs. It says, the only language that the fool understands is the rod, is pain. And so if you have a foolish child, it's not like wonderful things are bound up in the heart of a child, therefore cultivate that heart. It says, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child and gentle padding will remove it from them. No, it says, the rod, pain, will remove it from them. So you can either learn from observing others or learn by experience, but either, either way, God wants us to all know that in his house, there's a no sin rule. Unrepentant sin is not tolerated in the house of God. The third reason that uh, the confession cites and that scripture gives uh, for uh, the church to exercise discipline is to prevent the sin from spreading to others. So this is connected to the previous example. So you do it publicly. People are afraid. They buckle down. They're like, okay, I need to not go there. Um, And the image that scripture gives us is of a leaven that that spreads through the dough. So a little bit of leaven that eventually permeates the whole loaf. Um, Another image that we could use is kind of like a cancer that spreads to other parts of the body. Uh, Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So notice, if you're going to be in the vine, you're going to get cut. (laughs) It's just a part of being a part of the vine. There's going to be pruning, or if you're not fruitful at all, there is a cutting out. So sin is a disease that must be cut out of your body. And either you can cut it out yourself, disciplining your flesh, or you can let it grow and force the church to do the cutting. If we are one body and fellow members together, which we are, then there is no such thing as a truly private sin. Right? All sin is communal in that it impacts the body of Christ of which you are a member. Right? As Americans who are very individualistic, it's hard for us to even think in these terms. But we, so if you're a father, the sins that you do in the dark affect your little kids. We as a body, uh, if one of us is sinning or you know, we all know all of us are sinning all the time every week. But we need to repent of those sins, confess those sins, cut them out so that they don't spread to other people. So this is the function of uh, public discipline uh, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, do you not Know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Therefore, purge out the old leaven. Put away from yourselves the evil person. 
right? Uh, for those of you who are teachers or you just been a student in a classroom, you know just one bad, rebellious, disrespectful student can spoil the whole learning experience for everyone. And there are times where you just need to say, go to the detention office or expel the kid from the school because it's not worth it to allow them to continue to be there and make everyone else suffer, right? So same principle. The fourth uh, reason for church discipline is to honor Christ, who is our spouse and the head of the church. So just as a wife's actions can reflect poorly or well upon her husband, so also we as the church, our actions reflect upon the Lord Jesus. When the church tolerates unrepentant sin and does not exercise discipline, we are dishonoring Christ and giving him a bad name. The church is where repentant sinners can be cleansed and forgiven and welcomed in. But the church is not the place where unrepentant sinners can continue to live comfortably in a life of hypocrisy. Right? We have to make that distinction. If you have sin, you've come to the right place. We're here so that you can have your sins forgiven. But if you come here and don't want your sins forgiven, then you're in the wrong place. Right? You've got to go somewhere else. When Jesus sends letters to the pastors of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, a recurring theme is that if you don't exercise discipline and throw out false teachers or Jezebel, fornicators, liars, go, goes on, uh, Jesus says, then I am going to come myself and remove your lampstand. Church discipline is the immune system in Christ's body. <coughs> Church discipline is the immune system in Christ's body. And the threat that hangs over every church and every pastor and every session of elders is you exercise discipline or I will come and remove your lampstand directly from Jesus. This is uh, the message of those letters in Revelation. Many churches have a compromised immune system because the elders are too cowardly to make anyone upset. They fear the displeasure of certain people in the church. They fear the disapproval of those who might think they're being too harsh. And this is why God requires, number one, that only men be elders, but number two, only men who are impartial, fair-minded, and who hate a bribe. Right? No one would ever try to buy off a judgment with a bribe, right? But churches are fraught with bribery, emotional bribery especially. And so God requires that his servants, his elders, those who rule and judge in cases of discipline, fear God more than man. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. All right, so discipline as Hebrews says, is grievous. It feels harsh, it feels painful, it feels uncomfortable because it is, it's meant to. And yet this is the severe cure for severe sin. Romans 11.22 says, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Right, So we exercise the Lord's discipline to honor Jesus Christ, our head, 
because the purity of his bride and our testimony to the world is at stake. And that has to trump all of our feelings. Finally, the church exercises discipline to prevent the wrath of God coming upon us. So remember uh, in Joshua when Achan uh, stole the spoils from Jericho. So the walls of Jericho fall down. They go in and plunder it. But this guy Achan sees you know, a Babylonian cloak, some gold and some silver, and he hides it in his tent. And his family is aware of this. And then Joshua, they, you know, they're conquering, cleansing the land. Joshua sends out an army. I think it's like 3,000 Israelite soldiers. And they think, God is with us. We're going to get the victory. But instead, they're beaten. And 36 Israelite soldiers lose their life in this battle. Right? They weren't the ones who stole the stuff. They didn't know about it. And yet, you know, otherwise innocent men died in this battle because there was sin in the camp. So listen to what God says in Joshua 7, uh, 10 to 12. So Joshua is crying out to God, God, why did this happen? Are you not with us? And God says to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Right? All of that for one guy's, one household's sin. When there is sin in the camp, the church becomes impotent against its adversaries. This is why we, we need reformation in the church before there will be any revival in the United States. Right? The, the world is just you know, imitating the church's disobedience to God. Okay? So we're not showing the world very much what it means to be a disciple. It means you do what God says, even if you don't feel like it. So God commands the church to be holy as he is holy, so that when judgment comes, we are the ones who are purified and spared like the land of Goshen, rather than destroyed like Egypt and the ungodly. This is also why Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one to 32, regarding the Lord's Supper, he says, for if we would judge ourselves, then we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. So either, this is your choice, either the world will condemn you, call you a hater, or God will condemn you. Whose displeasure do you fear more? The world's displeasure, the world looking down their nose at you, calling you names, or do you fear your Father in heaven's displeasure? A man cannot have two masters, You cannot have it both ways. You cannot be applauded and praised by the world and applauded and praised by God. It says in Mark 8, remember this, Jesus uh, Jesus says, if you're ashamed of my words amidst this evil generation, uh, God's going to, my Father in heaven's going to be ashamed of you on the day of judgment. Finally, we come to our third question and then we'll wrap up. What is the purpose of, of a public trial like the one we will be conducting. 
So we already know the purposes for church, church discipline in general, but why do we need a public trial, right? Maybe we're thinking, is this one of those like witch trial things, right? What, what is going on? Is this really necessary? Well, I should note first that the only sin that someone can ultimately be excommunicated for is unrepentance. And so a public trial for excommunication would only be warranted in two situations. One, when a person had just said, I'm not going to repent. Or two, when their actions over time demonstrated that their repentance was not genuine. And then, even if the accused is found guilty of whatever charges are brought, they can plead guilty. Yeah, I did, I did the thing, I stole the thing, or whatever the charges were. But they can still repent. They can still make restitution. And if that repentance is genuine, then they won't be excommunicated. Like I said, unrepentance is the only sin that you can be excommunicated for. So the fact that a trial for excommunication is taking place does not mean that an outcome is already a foregone conclusion. The point of the trial is to establish the truth or falsity of the charges and determine whether the accused, if guilty, is willing to repent. So with that as kind of a setup, let me give you two reasons for conducting a public trial as we shall have on Wednesday. The first is to protect the person from any mistreatment or injustice from the elders and to protect the elders from any charges of injustice. It is the most serious thing for someone to be excommunicated. And if the charges are false or the person is innocent, a public trial allows them to defend themselves and even vindicate themselves against false accusations. If the trial was done behind closed doors and the elders just simply announced one day that so-and-so was excommunicated and the church never heard from the person themselves whether they pled guilty or innocent or whether they were repentant or not, well, that would not be a very transparent and honest process. Right? That was the process they used to crucify Jesus, right? They rush him through a trial in the night, and we want nothing to do with that kind of in-the-night backdoor dealing. This is also just following the basic command all throughout Scripture that judgment is to be established in the gates. You hear this all through the Bible. Establish justice in the gates. Where are the gates? The gates of the city are a public place. It's the place where disputes are settled. It's where uh, the rulers or the elders, the judges, sit And it's a place that anyone could go and see what is going on. So it's customary for the elders and priests to gather at the gates of the city to hear cases and render judgment. And by doing so in the public square, it has the effect of keeping people honest to their word. Whatever you say or do and whatever the judges judge is open for all to see. It keeps elders, witnesses, the prosecution, and the defendant all accountable to the broader community. We could call this healthy peer pressure. A second reason for a public trial is because excommunication is a public and communal punishment, as is restoration to the church. So this is an opportunity for the accused to make known to the church whether they are innocent or guilty, and if guilty, whether they are repentant or unrepentant. So let me walk you through the potential outcomes of uh, a kind of trial. If an innocent verdict is reached, then the person can be publicly restored 
to the body. They're vindicated against a false or untrue accusation. If a guilty verdict is reached, but the person is repentant, then they can begin the process of restoration with far more help, prayer, accountability, and encouragement than if it was never made public at all. Finally, if a guilty verdict is reached and the person is unrepentant, it is only then that excommunication would be the punishment and everyone would have heard, hey, they're, heart, they're hardening their heart, they're not going to submit to Christ, therefore they have chosen excommunication. In all these cases, by making this process public, the members of the church, you also become additional witnesses to whatever takes place. And this is the due process that God's justice commands. I'll close with this. The test for all of us is, do you trust God's word and that his ways are better and more just than your ways? Do you trust the Lord Jesus to use this process to purify his bride and glorify his name? Do you fear the Holy Ghost and his power among us? Americans have no fear of God. The church has no fear of God. You just look at the worship of many churches. There is no fear of God there. So do we fear the Holy Ghost and his power among us? When Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead for lying to the Holy Spirit, it says in Acts 5, and great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. And then a couple verses later, it says, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. Right? There's, there's a plan for church growth that the Bible gives. You fear God, and like we already know who saves people. God does. Who draws people into the church? Who convicts people of sin. It's the Holy Spirit. So do we fear the Holy Spirit? Like most people would not want people dropping dead because they lie to the Holy Spirit. Right? We would typically say, can't you do something a little gentler, Holy Spirit? Right? You're meant to be afraid. And we have no fear of God in our hearts. So this is how God grows his church, even through discipline. It is how our Father raises us up from foolish children into wise kings and queens who can reign with Christ. So please, trust your Father. He loves you. He knows what is best for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.